Welcome to the Theological Touchpoints podcast. I'm Julian. The focus for this episode is Touchpoints at the intersection of biblical theology and everyday life. The nature of Christ's atonement is becoming a common discussion. It's an important one, since the atonement is a foundational tenet of Christian doctrine. The atonement is no secondary or tertiary issue. Christ's atoning work is essential to the gospel. His work on the cross is what makes it possible for sinful men to be reconciled to a holy God, for us to be reconciled to a holy God. Our salvation rests upon Christ's atonement. So what we believe about it is of utmost importance. The doctrine of the atonement seeks to answer the question, what exactly did Christ do in his death that frees us from sin and reconciles us to God? Bound up in this is our understanding of what it is that separates us from God. Our understanding of what it is that separates us from God shapes our understanding of what Christ has done to reconcile us to God. So what is it that interferes with full fellowship? What is it that prevents God from embracing all of his creatures in his love? What must we be saved from if we are to be saved to God? What we believe about that which separates us from God is indivisible from our view of the atonement. Or to put it a different way, tell me what somebody believes about the atonement, and I can tell you what he believes about sin, holiness, and redemption. An increasingly popular view of the atonement is a theory called the Christus Victor theory of the atonement. Its proponents claim that Christus Victor is the classical understanding of the atonement, one held by the majority of the church until Anselm of Canterbury developed a substitutionary model of the atonement in the 11th century. According to the Christus Victor view, Christ's death is primarily about his defeat of the powers of darkness. So in answer to the question, what is it that separates us from God, Christus Victor would say, we are captive to Satan, and we can only be reconciled to God if we are freed from captivity. Man is captive to Satan, and he can only be freed through Christ's victory over Satan. Man's captivity in the realm of darkness keeps him from God. So salvation, then, is about his being rescued from Satan. Christ's atoning work is a display of divine power, Christ showing that he is greater than death and Satan themselves, and through his power, he breaks the bonds of sin, Satan, and death, and frees us from captivity, frees us to God. Christus Victor rests heavily on the work of Gustav Allen, whose work was published 60 years ago in the book entitled Christus Victor. And he quotes extensively from the early church, showing that they frequently refer to Christ's work in the atonement as a victory over Satan. And he is correct that the early church writers emphasized this aspect of Christ's atoning work. He believed that this, Christ the victor, was the prevailing view of the early church, thus he called it the classical view of the atonement. His work has had an outsized effect on the church. The question is, are his claims legitimate. Far from being the long-held position of the church, Christus Victor, as it is in circulation among us, is a modern invention. It's true that the early church said things that sounded very much like Christus Victor, but they were quite comfortable using substitutionary language as well to describe the atonement. Poor scholarship allows one to prop up Christus Victor ideas while ignoring the other atonement themes also present in the early church writers. They certainly taught Christus Victor themes, 
but they did so alongside a full-orbed definition, one that included substitutionary atonement and justice satisfaction. Christus Victor rightly emphasizes that the atonement is a demonstration of Christ's power whereby he defeated sin, Satan, and death. But Christus Victor, as it exists today in contemporary scholarship and contemporary discussion, deliberately divorces the atonement of substitutionary themes. Put differently, the atonement is not less than Christus Victor, but it's more than Christus Victor. The atonement rightly understood includes the themes of Christ's victory over sin, Satan, and death, but it also includes the biblical themes of Christ's substitution, his death on our behalf, whereby we are freed from sin, and not just from a captivity to sin that exists outside of us, but the sinful nature that exists within us. So Christ did indeed defeat sin, Satan, and death, but his defeat was accomplished in and through his substitutionary death. He died in our place, becoming sin for us. As Romans says, we are saved from wrath through him. Distinct from the early church's view of the atonement, the modern definition of Christus Victor is opposed to any kind of wrath-bearing, justice-satisfying, sin-propitiating understanding of the atonement, and thus it overturns the biblical gospel. In this way, Christus Victor turns our attention away from our personal culpability, rather looking to Adam's mistakes and Satan's dominion over us as the primary problem, thereby excusing our sinful behavior. In Christus Victor, our problem becomes not our sin as something inside of us that needs to be dealt with, a a corrupt nature that needs to be corrected, a corrupt nature that expresses itself in rebellion against God and earns for itself wrath from a holy God. In Christus Victor, we are victims, but not villains. We sin because we are enslaved to Satan, not because we are sinners. So I hope you can see with me that a different definition of the problem, the problem is something outside of us that is causing us to sin, whereas biblically the problem is inside us. Yes, Satan tempts us to sin, but James says we are led away by our own lusts and deceived. Satan provides us with opportunities to express our sinful nature, but that does not make him responsible, nor are we victims. We are fellow rebels against God, and we ourselves as sinners, sinners by nature and by choice, are responsible for our rebellion against God. But Christus Victor, as it exists in the modern sphere, defines the problem as a captivity. Our problem is our captivity to sin, Satan, and death as powers outside of us to which we are captives. And because of that, the atoning work of Christ frees us from captivity, but does not absolve our personal sin. And because of this, I believe Christus Victor presents a different understanding of the atonement than the church has historically held and than the Bible itself teaches. So the problem is redefined. Scripture presents our primary problem as being our own sin, our own choice to rebel against God. But Christus Victor gives a different definition where we sin because we are captive to forces outside of us. 
This blame-shifting redefinition is a little different than Adam's game in the garden. When God came to Adam and asked Adam, what have you done? Adam turned to Eve and said, it was this woman. And then he turned to God and said, who you gave to me. Now, I'm not responsible for what I did. It's this woman, and you're the one who put her in my life. Don't blame me. But it's not in blame shifting that we are forgiven. Rather, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So Christus Victor, as I believe it is being taught, redefines the problem rather than owning our sin, taking responsibility, confessing, repenting, turning to Christ, and seeing Christ's work as primarily being about saving us from the wrath we deserve because of our sin. It excuses our sin. We are, in that scheme, merely victims. And so rather than maintaining God's perfection, God's righteousness, it softens God's righteousness and softens our sin to minimize the severity of our own rebellion. But salvation does not come to those who excuse their sin. Again, we must confess our sin. When we own our sin, confessing it in brokenness and contrition, then comes the promise that God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Does Christus Victor highlight some biblical themes? Certainly does. We are freed from Satan's power through Christ's death. But is freedom from Satan what the atonement is primarily about? Certainly not. Rather, freedom from Satan's clutches is accomplished by Christ's payment for our sins. We are captive to Satan because we are captive to our own sin. If we are outside of Christ, we are certainly in Satan's kingdom, in the realm of darkness. But we are there willingly because our hearts, unless they are changed by the Holy Spirit through the gospel, our hearts are inclined toward sin. There's none righteous. There's none who understands. There's none who seeks after God. We have all turned away. We have all gone our own way. This from Romans 3. As an effect of Adam's fall, we are by nature slaves of sin. But again, that's not something that exists outside of us. Rather, that's something within us, our nature that loves the sin, that leads us to the kingdom of darkness and Satan. So how can we be freed from Satan? By being freed from our own sin. And this is laid out so clearly in Hebrews chapter 2. It says that Christ, through death, destroyed him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. So what is it in his death that destroyed the devil's work? It's his substitution. It was through his death, which was in our place, that he destroyed the devil and the works of the devil. So I hope you can see with me, Christus Victor would like to say that Christ freed us from the devil, but he did so without needing to take our place and experience the wrath of God on our behalf. But this text in Hebrews and the witness of the New Testament consistently speaks of Christ taking our place as our substitute. 
He was made like us. Again, in Hebrews chapter 2, and if you want more material on these verses, I've done a podcast on these verses previously. Just look through the archives and you'll find podcasts covering this section of Hebrews. Christ was made like us so that he could make propitiation for the sins of the people. Specifically here in Hebrews, Hebrews 2 verse 17, it speaks of Christ's incarnation as being for the purpose of propitiating our sins or dying in our place to save us from our sins. The effect of that propitiation, the effect of his substitution, is that not only are we freed from our own sin, but we are freed from the devil, the one who has the power of death. This propitiation is none other than Christ's substitutionary death. Hebrews chapter 10 says that Christ put away sin, he dealt with the sin problem, how? By the sacrifice of himself. He gave himself for us, dying on the cross, in our place, and by that substitutionary work, whereby he satisfied the justice of God. Romans chapter 3, just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. God maintains his justice, but he justifies the sinner. Christ put away sin by the sacrifice of himself, his death on the cross, saving us from our sin. He bore our sins in his body on the tree. Christ's death delivers us from sin. Delivery from sin delivers us from Satan. So far from Christus Victor, which makes sin an effect of bondage to Satan, that is, we sin because we are captives, the Bible is clear that bondage to Satan is an effect of our bondage to sin. Kill sin, and the bondage is broken. Similarly, Colossians 2 says that Christ has forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. We see here that forgiveness comes through Christ paying the penalty for our sins. What's the problem? We need to be forgiven. How are we forgiven? Christ dies for us. He nails to the cross the handwriting of requirements that was against us. The law, which reveals our sin nature, the perfect standard of God, which we cannot keep, this law is against us in the sense that it reveals our sin. This law under which we are condemned, Christ has fulfilled and has satisfied the penalty we deserve on the cross. And because of this, the principalities and powers are disarmed. Not only are they disarmed, they are made a mockery of. It says he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them, that is the principalities and powers, Satan and his minions, triumphing over them in it. In what? In his substitutionary atonement. 
Forgiveness comes through Christ paying the penalty for our sins. That payment was made on the cross. And the effect of this victorious substitution is that the principalities and powers are disarmed and humiliated. Trespasses are forgiven through Christ's death. By this, we are not only freed from sin and death, but also from Satan. So yes, Christ is the victor over sin, Satan, and death. Christus Victor gets this aspect of the atonement right, sort of. And I say sort of because in the Christus Victor framework, the extent of the atonement is Christ's victory over sin, Satan, and death. And it seems to me that one of the motives that drives people to Christus Victor, instead of a substitutionary understanding, is to try to avoid the difficulty of Christ being under the wrath of God, of the Father who has loved the Son from all eternity, now being wrathful toward the Son. Though that may be a difficult concept intellectually and emotionally, it does seem to be the clear teaching of Scripture. Those who hold the Christus Victor would like to define the atonement in ways that dismiss or avoid the need for Christ to be under the wrath of God for us. Yes, that may be a difficult concept for us, but yes, it is the clear teaching of Scripture that can be shown from a variety of texts. Christ died in our place. He died the death we deserved to die. So, Christus Victor is right in saying that Christ, in his atoning work, is the victor over sin, Satan, and death. But it is wrong because it tries to explain that that could happen apart from substitution. But the Bible teaches that Christ is victorious precisely because he has paid our death. We see this in Hebrews. We saw this in Colossians. We also see it in 2 Corinthians. He became sin who knew no sin, that we in him would become the righteousness of God. There are those who would like to say that should be translated, he became a sin offering. The problem with that is the word for sin is consistent in the verse. And so if you're going to say he became a sin offering, you would also have to say who knew no sin offering. And that's logically inconsistent. That doesn't work in the grammar or in what the Apostle Paul would have intended to communicate with the words he used. He became sin. Not that he became sinful, but he experienced that which we deserved. And he experienced that in our place, that, the effect of that, that we would become the righteousness of God in Christ, as an effect of what Christ did for us. So Christ takes our sin, we receive Christ's righteousness. Christ died for us, bearing our sin, taking our place, becoming sin for us. Again, 2 Corinthians 5 21. It is his justice-satisfying substitution that frees us from Satan's iron grip. Without substitution, there is no freedom. Christus Victor's denial of substitution removes the substance of the gospel, and all that's left is powerless absolution. Is Christus Victor an acceptable atonement theory? Now, we could answer that question a variety of ways. Are there true believers who hold to the Christus Victor atonement theory? I believe there are. Is Christus Victor what the Bible clearly teaches? I don't believe it is. Again, consistent with portions of Scripture, 
but at the same time ignoring other portions of Scripture that develop the idea of the atonement beyond simply his victory over sin, Satan, and death. So is Christus Victor an acceptable atonement theory when it's used to sidestep the biblical doctrine of the wrath of God? It is not an acceptable theory. When it is used to minimize our sin, it is not. When it is used as a cop-out, it is not. When it is used in contradiction to the clear teaching of Scripture, it is not an acceptable atonement theory. Christus Victor is gaining ground because it depicts a softer, kinder God. Not one of wrath, but one of grace. Not one of justice, but one of mercy. Yet without wrath, grace is no grace. Without justice, mercy is no mercy. Minimizing God's perfections has only the effect of minimizing salvation. It is precisely because sin deserves eternal punishment that salvation is so marvelous. It is because God is perfect and holy that we are amazed to be brought into his presence through Christ sinners with the sinless, unholy with the holiest of all. We were soiled and detestable, but through Christ's substitutionary death, we can be made clean. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Theological Touchpoints podcast. This podcast is a production of Sword and Trumpet Ministries. For more information, visit swordandtrumpet.org slash podcast or theologicaltouchpoints.com slash podcast. If you have thoughts or questions, you can contact us at podcast at theologicaltouchpoints.com. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, who also will do it.